0: What's up, murder lovers? <laughs> My name is Mackenzie. <laughs> and this is Fatina. And you're listening to Stranger Danger, a True Crime Podcast. And we are the weirdos that use things like murder lovers in our intro. <laughs> Only the real ones will understand. If you guys have anything else that you'd like to hear, you know the drill. Uh, follow us on Instagram at A Stranger Danger Podcast. You can email us at astrangerdangerpodcast at gmail.com. And Facebook, let me see if I can get it, is Stranger Danger colon A True Crime Podcast. That Holla! Is <laughs> Welcome
1: back.
0: Welcome back. Okay, so today's episode is a censored swear free episode for both of us because the topic is brought to you by my dear old grandmother.
1: Okay, I agree. Yes.
0: <laughs> um she mentioned this to my mom and my mom mentioned it to me.
1: Did Vicky listen to let's just call it her episode because yeah. that's what it was.
0: Yeah she was funny. She said um at the end of it you go thanks Vicky and I was like thanks mom she was driving. She was like you're welcome <laughs> But this one is my grandma's first true crime memory. Oh, fun. Yeah. We're just keeping keeping the trend going. You know, I'm trying to get a good feel for timeline and how old she was. Hold on. Let me let me call her, actually. Okay. Hey, sweetie. Hey. Question for you. Yeah. You were telling my mom the other day about the little girl that was killed in Illinois. uh uh-huh. Suzanne, I'm trying to gauge timelines here. How old were you when that happened? I was uh, 12 or 13, I think. Yeah. And where were you living? I, uh,
1: in Minneapolis.
0: Oh, you were in Minneapolis. Okay.
1: You know, born and raised there. I, I stayed there until I was
0: 18. Because mom said that after you heard that story, you were afraid to go to Chicago. <laughs> it, it practically made me have a breakdown whenever I ever heard the word Chicago. <laughs> my hair practically if hair stood on end mine was doing it oh my gosh <laughs> that scared the tire out of me I couldn't believe that you remembered her name and everything so quickly well that's why you know those trauma things <laughs> uh, I was I was just a kid and there I was babysitting other kids and that came on the radio they kept coming on they'd find different parts right and <laughs> And of course I she tell you I hopped in bed with the kids I was babysitting and got over by the wall. No, she didn't. <laughs> there were two of them I pushed them to the outside and I got in by the wall. <laughs> you left them on the outer corners to fend for themselves. <laughs> <laughs> oh. oh, that's funny. All right. Well, thank you for filling me in on that okay sounds a little grisly to me oh i know that's <laughs> definitely morbid <laughs> yeah. all right okay talk to you tomorrow okay. all right Bye-bye. Bye. okay so this is a story of william herons uh he is formally known as the lipstick killer Um, which I'll get into a little bit here as to why. My grandma didn't remember his name, and that's part of the reason I didn't really go into it with her, but she did remember the name of his third victim, Suzanne Degnan, and we'll kind of get there as we go along here. But William George Herons was born on November fifteenth, 1928, in Evanston, Illinois, to George and Margaret Herons. Um, His family was super poor. His parents argued a lot, so this caused William to kind of wander the streets and get away from the arguing. This is also when he began to steal, and he would just kind of commit petty theft or burglary for fun and what he called stress relief and stuff. Stress relief? Yeah. But he's just a kid at this point. So he was arrested for the first time when he was 13 years old for carrying a loaded gun. When authorities searched his home, they found a huge stash of stolen items, including various weapons. He admitted to 11 burglaries altogether, and he was sent to a school for wayward boys. He was there for about a couple months, and when he was released, he was arrested shortly after, again, for theft and larceny. So he's got kind of this history of stealing as a kid. This time, he was sentenced to a monastery-type school. It was operated by Catholic nuns. And during this time, he was considered to be top of his class, so he was super high-performing. He was basically, like, top of the tag kids, okay. if you will, which isn't all that uncommon for criminals like this that we see.
1: Right, they have high IQs most of the time. Right.
0: So it was during this that he was encouraged to apply for the University of Chicago Special Learning Program. This allows him to bypass basically the remaining years of his high school oh, and he start to get Yeah, start to get college credit and everything. So he was accepted into the program in 1945 and at this time he's sixteen years old. So his family couldn't afford the program because like I said, they're poor, poorer than poor. So he began working evenings to help offset costs. He also did kind of some odds and end jobs on campus. During this time, he also kind of returned to his old habits of stealing. But again, kind of in a petty way where he's stealing from people. Just to get by.
1: Just enough to get by.
0: Yeah, well, and that's the thing. is like he wasn't... They said that he never sold the items that he stole. It really sounds like it was more out of entertainment.
1: That's interesting.
0: Yeah. But the thing to keep in mind is at this point he is sixteen.
1: Okay, so he's just doing it, saying this is I
0: can do it. Right. Okay. So on June fifth, nineteen forty-five, um, this is the same year he's accepted into the school, although he's not supposed to start classes until the fall. Forty-three-year-old Josephine Ross was found dead in her apartment in Chicago. Again, I'm going to stress he was sixteen. Yeah. She had been repeatedly stabbed, and her head was wrapped in a dress as if to cover her face. She had a fistful of dark hair in her hand, and that indicated some type of struggle. Nothing was missing or stolen. And police questioned the men close to her, but all of them had pretty rock-solid alibis. And all they knew is that they were looking for a dark-haired man.
1: Okay. Obviously, there's. this is the 30s, early 30s. Right? 40s. So 40s. '45. So no no DNA. Right. Okay.
0: On December 10th, 1945, Frances Brown, whose age isn't reported, but she was reportedly divorced, so she is an adult female,
1: okay.
0: was found with a knife in a neck and a bullet in the head Whoa. in her apartment in Chicago. She had been also repeatedly stabbed, but again, nothing was missing. This time, a note had been left written in lipstick on the wall of her apartment. It said, for heaven's sakes, catch me before I kill more. I cannot control myself. <sighs> This is where the name the lipstick killer right. comes from. This is really the only instance that I found of lipstick being used, so it was like.
1: They just kind of yeah, ran with it. The exactly. Media, I'm sure.
0: Okay. A bloody fingerprint was found on the door jamb of her apartment. Police were kind of all over the place on these. First, they said that it must have been an intruder who was possibly robbing the place when victims when the victims unexpectedly came home. But again, nothing was stolen. Nothing was missing. So that didn't really hold up. If it was an intruder looking to rob the place, they, they would have taken, taken
1: something. Something, anything. Right.
0: Then a night clerk at Francis's building said a thin man about forty five or I'm sorry thirty five to forty years old had gotten off the elevator that he didn't recognize. He acted kind of strangely and nervously before leaving. And then four days after that, the police announced that they believed the killer was a woman. So literally all over the place. But again, at this point, nothing looks like William. Okay. Right. So the eyewitness saying thirty five to forty years forty five years old. He's Doesn't sixteen. Match him. Yeah, he's not a woman. Nothing's been stolen, and that's kind of his his crime of choice, if you will. And then on January 19 or I'm sorry, January 7th of 1946, six-year-old Suzanne Degnan uh, went missing from her bedroom in Chicago. Police found a ladder outside the window and a ransom note. And the ransom note read, get twenty thousand dollars ready and wait for word. Do not notify FBI or police, bills and fives and tens burn this for her safety. It's written in a variety of, like, types of handwriting, cursive, block letters, that kind of thing. Also, it interchanges between capitals and lowercases. A lot of the words are spelled incorrectly. It's... It's it's, thought out, but... it, It is or it isn't. So this could be one of two things. We're either dealing with somebody who's relatively illiterate, or we're dealing with somebody who is smart enough to try and cover their tracks by pretending to be illiterate. Right but not really sure which Hmm. a man called the Degnan house several times demanding ransom, but always hung up before headway could be made on that. The mayor of Chicago also received a note during this time. And the note read, this is to tell you how sorry I am not to get old Degnan instead of his girl. Roosevelt and the OPA made their own laws. Why shouldn't I? And a lot more. So, during this time, there was a nationwide meatpacker strike, and the OPA, which is the Office of Price Administration, was considering rationing dairy products. Oh. Degnan was a senior executive for the OPA and had recently been transferred to Chicago. Oh. There had been threats against other executives during this time, along with their own children, and police thought it was possible that a meatpacker was responsible. Okay. The police received an anonymous tip that led them to a sewer about a block from the Dagan residence, and in there, they found Suzanne's head. Just her head. Yeah. Now, this is the part that my grandma remembers. They found her head. They also found her right leg in a catch basin, and her torso was in another storm drain, and her left leg was in another drain. So my grandma remembers them recovering her body parts from around the city. Wow. And that is what terrified her. It made her jump to bed with the kids she was babysitting and sleeping against the wall because she was so scared. Because remember, I mean, at this point, my grandma's 13. This little girl was 6. They found her body from different parts of the city. It was all kind of spread out. There was blood that was found in the drains of a laundry tub in the basement of a laundry room of a nearby apartment building. This was later determined to be the place where the corpse was dismembered, although Suzanne was already dead when her body was brought there. So not actually the place that she was killed, but it is where she was dismembered. During this investigation, police questioned hundreds of people, administered approximately 170 polygraphs, um, and released several statements to having caught the killer, only to then have multiple suspects released.
1: So they just kept trying to get someone onto it. Okay. Right.
0: The police said that it was a very sharp knife that was used for the dismemberment and believed the killer had to be a meat cutter, stating that not even a doctor could have been as skillful um, because there were no signs of hacking at the body or anything like that. They knew where to cut. Right. Police, during this time, used really extreme interrogation techniques. I wouldn't even say bordering on torture. They were torture. So I don't know what the regulations were like at this time, but this is... Just crazy to me. So one of the suspects that they interrogated reported that his beatings and the torture techniques that they used landed him in the hospital for 10 days. He actually sued the Chicago PD and won $15,000. Two teenage boys were arrested in connection to the Suzanne murder. Theodore Campbell was one of them. He admitted to making the ransom calls, but said that the other boy, who was named Vincent Costello had killed her, and then after interrogation and polygraphs, the police discovered that the boys were not involved, but they had actually overheard officers talking about the crime and had decided to take advantage of the situation and try and get the ransom money. So they made the calls to try and collect on the ransom because of what they'd overheard. They
1: were just kids trying to get the money.
0: Yeah, teenagers. Wow. I think, if I remember right, they were like 13 or something. That's young. Yeah. This one sticks out to me in particular. This one was a suspect by the name of Richard Russell Thomas, who was a nurse that was serving time in Phoenix after molesting his own daughters. He was connected to the murders after police found out he'd been in Chicago at the same time. He actually confessed to the murders, and his handwriting was a match to the ransom note, and he had medical training as a nurse, so he fit the profile that had been built. Mm -hmm. But... News broke about a story about a college student who was caught fleeing the scene of an armed robbery, and the news became fixated on this guy, and so the police turned their attention towards this kid,
1: right.
0: and after they did that, Richard Thomas actually recanted his statement.
1: What is going on with the police at this point?
0: I have no idea. And wow. So it yeah it gets worse from here. So also t-
1: I'm not saying much because a lot of it is
0: cuss words and i We're keeping it not
1: too. So I keep thinking what the bleep.
0: <laughs> <laughs> the teen that was fleeing the scene was you guessed it uh, William Heron's who was 17 at this time. Okay. Herons said he was interrogated for six days, 24 what? hours a day was not allowed to eat or drink and was repeatedly beaten during this time. He wasn't allowed to see his parents for 4 days and was refused an attorney. Now, when I was writing this up, I was like, really, he wasn't allowed to see his parents for 14 or for 4 days. And then I had to remind myself he is a child.
1: Yeah, he's 17. Yeah. That seems like you're right. This seems like a really extreme tactic. That's that mild and...
0: compared to what I'm about to tell you. Oh, you're
1: joking. Mm-hmm. Because that's already bad.
0: Yeah.
1: I'm sorry. I need a glass of water at least every... I need a Diet Coke.
0: (laughs) I mean, you can drink something stronger if you need
1: it. (laughs) No, well, he's 17, but... I mean, some... uh, Okay. The only thing I can picture when you're saying that the police are beating someone is just, you know, old police movies of the good cop, bad cop, and someone coming in and using excessive force to... Yeah. ...shake the truth out of someone, but... And I'm sure that's probably what it was like.
0: Right. And it's probably because of stuff like this that interrogation is now so regulated. Right. And everything is filmed and, you know, there's so many different rules of what you can and can't do. If you didn't know,
1: you are filmed,
0: recorded. (laughs) Spoiler.
1: (laughs) Every time you're... In the police station, so.
0: There's a camera on you. Yep. Yeah. So during this time, two psychiatrists actually dosed him with sodium pentothal, which is nicknamed a true serum now. Oh. Um, this, Wait, that's a real thing? Yeah. Stop it. No, it's a real thing. It's not just on Harry Potter. Um, <laughs> this is typically used as an anesthetic uh, for vets that are putting animals down. It does have the nickname of being a true serum because it does kind of get people Chatty Cathy. Yeah. Um, Tequila does that too, but... Yeah. <laughs> also makes your clothes come off. But. <laughs> That's what I've been told, at least. This was done without a warrant or consent from the parents or Herons himself. At this point, police continued to interrogate him for another three hours, and it was during this time that he said a man named George committed the murders. One of the psychiatrists that was there... that. Administered the drugs, said that Heron's never admitted to any of the murders and never implicated himself, but the original transcript of the interrogations disappeared. Disappeared, of course. Invisibility cloak over the (laughs) second Harry Potter reference.
1: (laughs) Okay, (laughs)
0: disappeared. Yeah. His so skull. if there's
1: transcripts, there has to be. Well, I guess there doesn't have to be. But Type is there writer. audio? Oh, just someone in the room.
0: Yeah. Because hmm. this is before MacBooks. How did they do it? I don't know. <laughs> he would say something along the lines of George Merman um, and call like they kind of referred to it as his alter ego. Oh. Then the police changed it to George Murderman, and it was just ugh, it's very corny it's a very George murder (laughs) yeah it's a super corny attempt at trying to implicate something that isn't there but that was Williams description of what happened while he was drugged he says he doesn't recall any of this but that is what he said happened on his fifth day in custody Herons was given a lumbar puncture without anesthesia so like a spinal tap no rhyme or reason why there's nothing documented as to why they would do that. That took my
1: breath away. I've seen someone get a spinal tap and it's
0: with anesthesia they can feel it.
1: Oh. So to God. do it without
0: that, I'm I don't I don't know. It makes me ill. And then and it's a delicate procedure, too. It's not something that you just Yeah, because you can end up leaking uh-huh. spinal fluid. Like it can paralyze you. Right. But rather and you I my understanding I could be completely wrong about this but you have to lay in a certain position and like stuff like right. that but moments after he gets the lumbar puncture they pack him up into the police car like not even a few hours later and drive him off to the police station to undergo a polygraph test
1: what was the reason they didn't
0: there's not documented why they don't say just why just
1: torture then it
0: seems like seems like whoa
1: that's intense
0: So they take him in for a polygraph test, but understandably, he's under so much pain that he can't cooperate with the testing. So they try it a few times, and then they decide that they're going to reschedule it. They finally are able to administer the test. I believe it's a few days later, and they report that the results are inconclusive.
1: Well, yeah. You have someone who hasn't slept for eight days. Put a pin in that.
0: Put a pin in that. (laughs) His handwriting did not match any of the notes found, but police claimed his fingerprints were a match for a print on um, the second victim's door. That's Francis Brown's door. Remember the smudged thumbprint? Mm -hmm. This has been widely disputed based on the thumbprint originally being described as a smudge. Uh, The police said they had a nine point match to the fingerprint on the ransom note for Suzanne. That's not much. Exactly. That is a match to 65% of the population. They have to have a 12-point match for it to be considered right. a positive ID.
1: Also, I really like fingerprints. <laughs> That's
0: a weird sorry. thing to say. Like
1: Not fingerprints, but the study of fingerprints. Okay. Prey. Okay, sorry. Uh, can I see your thumb, please? I'm like, uh, <laughs> No, I, 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 I find that fascinating. I remember that was one of the first things I remember from sign classes. Yeah. Was looking into fingerprints and the type that there is. Mm-hmm. I have a, a colliding one.
0: I don't know what that means. Where
1: there's... it, I have two swirls that go in and, and blend. Oh. Yeah.
0: Cool. What's weird. Mm.
1: Anyway. Anyhow. Sorry. Um, tangent.
0: The police end up searching his house without a warrant, but find nothing connecting him to the murders. Not his his house. house? Yeah. So his parents', parents house. house? Yeah. Okay. The Chicago Tribune at this time reported several false stories, including claims that Herons had confessed to one of their sources. There is actually, um, someone said that when this newspaper came out with that story of him confessing or whatever, somebody heard him in his cell yelling that he'd never confessed to anything because he read the paper um, and apparently had like a conniption fit about it. Actually, the state's attorney's office came out at that point denying that there had ever been a confession, trying to set the record straight and like, no confession, but other newspapers opted to pick up the story about the confession instead just kept going with it yeah so it was like 12 other newspapers i think they said something about 154 headlines by the time Whoa. the whole thing was over like that just were lies
1: and, i mean that day and age it's viral for 1945
0: yep Wow. His own attorneys actually believed that he was guilty based on a lot of these things as well as a lot of the newspaper articles that came out. So they set out with a mission to save him from the electric chair rather than to try and prove him innocent. So already our priorities are a little bit in the wrong place. And the irony in this situation is that the prosecutor on the case, who is... I'm sorry, Grandma. He's a total asshole. <laughs> I'm sorry. We made it so far. I, I tried really hard, but I don't got another word for it. Um, he just legitimately the worst. He said at the time that he didn't think that he was going to be able to get a conviction based on the evidence. So his attorneys pressured him to take a plea bargain with the deal that he would get a life sentence in exchange for his confession to all three murders. He drafted his confession using the Chicago Tribune articles. And those guided him through his confession details, because he said he didn't know most of the details of the case. Um, so he used he used the newspaper articles to draft his own confession because he said he didn't know about the crime. so he didn't know what he was confessing to. So he used these articles to write his own confession. Put the
1: details in because
0: they told him that if he didn't, he was going to be electrocuted. Wow. yeah. Uh, he said that sometimes when he'd get the details wrong, his attorneys would be like, no, is that what really happened? And that's what he would use to know that he was like, not getting something right. Feeding him. The yeah. Right. Okay. Both him and his parents signed the confession. Um, his
1: parents. Did t- okay. Cause yeah, they wanted cause to kid. avoid the, the chair. He's okay. He's a kid.
0: Yeah. The prosecutors ended up withdrawing the plea deal and they changed it to three life terms to run consecutively they threatened Herons with the death penalty if he didn't agree. And they also threatened to charge him with another murder, despite having a rock-hard alibi for where he was. He was actually like at one of those schools where he was serving out a sentence. Right. Um, that's what he was doing when this other person was murdered. So there was no way he could have done it, but they were threatening to charge him with that one as well. And so he ended up agreeing to the new plea deal. When he was asked why he did it, he said, quote, I confess to save my life sad yeah by the end of this one i was like legitimately sitting in like tears because it was just it's so clear to me what happened here
1: yeah
0: but anyway we'll get we'll get to my thoughts at the end i'll have my moment (laughs) (laughs) he entered his plea on september 4th 1946 in court that night he actually tried to hang himself in his (gasps) cell during a shift change the next day he was sentenced to all three of the life terms He was so young. Yeah. He's such a baby. As Herons waited to be transferred to the Stateville Prison from the Cook County Jail, the sheriff at the time asked if Suzanne Degnan had suffered when she was killed. And his answer to this was, I can't tell you if she suffered. This is again, quote. I can't tell you if she suffered, Sheriff McCauley. I didn't kill her. Tell Mr. Degnan to please look after his other daughter because whoever killed Susanna is still out there. Oh,
1: that hit hard.
0: Yeah. Oh, I just got body chills. Yeah. <laughs> um, because
1: who says something like that? I don't know. That hit me as hard as uh, that mom that said, I want to live one day longer than I him. I know.
0: Yeah.
1: Okay, I don't know exactly where this is going to end up, but that sounds like something an innocent man would say.
0: Yeah. And So Josephine Ross's family, who's actually victim number one in this, they came out within just a couple days and said that they didn't believe Heron's was guilty. The I believe this is daughter in the case said that she had gone through all of the stuff that was recovered by police, and she said none of her mom's stuff was among them. And she's like, "This guy's a thief. Something belonging to my mom would have been there. There's oh. nothing there."
1: So they went back and looked at all the trying stuff they to identify had anything. Yeah. And none of them can go back
0: to them. Right. Wow. Um, the prosecutor on this case admitted under oath in 1952 that he paid the psychiatrist $1,000 to administer that sodium pentothal injection. The tr- truth serum? Yeah. So not only did he have that done, but he paid them to do it, which I don't know what the law was at this time, but I'm going to assume that that wasn't legal. Right. You don't pay a psychiatrist money under the table to administer a drug. That's... No. No. Handwriting experts cleared herons of both the ransom notes and the wall scribbles. They said that it just didn't match at all. There is evidence that suggests that the fingers on the door jam were actually placed by police because it appears to be a rolled (gasps) fingerprint. Duh. So you, Miss Fingerprint Expert here... They said it's that rolled. It means they already had one. It's literally. They said it looks like it was taken from a postcard yep. and stamped on there. It's a fully rolled out fingerprint, like you would roll a finger to do fingerprints, of somebody sure. that had been or like arrested or whatever. So it's like all parts of the yep. finger on there, and they said that that's just not how that's that not wouldn't how have been done. That's not how you handle something. And. The fact that it looked like a rolled fingerprint, but it was also described as being a smudge. Like, there's a lot of inconsistency there as far as, like, the fingerprints themselves.
1: And that was what they're banking on. Mm-hmm.
0: There were 29 inconsistencies found between the confession given by Herons and the known facts of the crimes.
1: That's a lot. Mm-hmm. Like, one or two. Sure. Sure. 29? Right. That's a lot.
0: He was actually paroled for the life sentence of Suzanne in 1965 and then began serving his second life sentence in 1966. Several petitions were filed. Several appeals were filed. But it was further complicated by laws changing during this time, becoming less focused on rehabilitation, more focused on punishment, several different things. And basically, at the end of the day, none of them, none of his appeals were granted. Yeah. He was the first prisoner in Illinois history to actually earn a bachelor's degree. And when he was transferred to the Vienna prison, which is a minimum security prison, he actually helped them set up their educational program at that prison and helped others get their GED. By all accounts, he was a model prisoner. Again, he basically served most of it out in minimum security because he posed no threat. He wasn't aggressive or anything. Right. Okay. Um, He suffered from diabetes and resided in the hospital ward of those prisons towards the later years. He eventually had to use a wheelchair due to his failing sight and swollen legs. And this is the part where I like, it bothers me so much. It gets me all emotional um, because I think of him like sitting there in a wheelchair and just being sick. And reportedly he also suffered from dementia in the last few months of his life. So he died from complications on March 5th of 2012. He was 83 years old. He was the longest serving inmate in Illinois history. And it's very likely that he was innocent. And that is the story of William Herons. This day and age,
1: obviously there's nothing that would have brought it back up for the police. To reinvestigate or to look into this?
0: You know, what's so funny is, like, there was a retired um, detective who actually wrote a book basically arguing that this guy was innocent Mm -hmm. and made his own motions to the court to try and prove that he was innocent. Yeah. I mean, he went all out for this guy. And this is a member of the force. And still nothing. And then, like, the prosecutor he had to answer for the things that he did, obviously down the road. I'm not sure under what circumstances, but they said under oath he had to tell them like that he paid the psychiatrist to do what he'd done. So obviously questions had been raised. Right. And it sounds like on several of these appeal attempts and everything, they got pretty far along with it, but then like Suzanne's family would step in and be like, no, don't let him out. And the, with the public pressure and everything like that, and right. they ended up failing every single time the part that bothers me so much about this is the idea of the choices that you make when you're 16 or 17 years old when you're a kid coming from a rough background not only would they have consequences to such a magnitude but from the time he was 17 to the time he was 83 because the news caught wind of one of the robberies that he committed
1: this sounds a lot
0: like making a murderer
1: You know what I mean? Yeah. low IQ.
0: But he's not. He's super smart. You're right. That's what I was going to say. It's that we're not dealing with country bumpkin. (laughs) We're dealing with arguably one of the most corrupt cities in the entire United States. And...
1: I wonder if it was ever... I wonder how the evidence was kept.
0: And... They said that there was a lot of issues with... Chain of custody on it. Yeah. Being broken. Things going missing. Things being contaminated, the evidence was basically either worthless, tainted, right. or potentially that manufactured.
1: Bunch of hair that the was it first victim had in her yeah. hair, hand. That could have easily even down the line because if he was eighty three when he passed away, that was easily two thousand something.
0: Yeah. He was two thousand and come on, people.
1: There's DNA by then.
0: Two thousand twelve. But yeah, who knows what all was left of that? And the, right, the thing too about this is that the victims, again, don't have any consistency. You've right. got people in their forties or a woman in her forties all the way down to a a, a six, kid. Yeah, yeah. And the manner of death—they're
1: all different. Is You're so right.
0: different. I have a hard time believing that any of these are connected. Right. And for the um, coroner to say, like, whoever did this knew their way around a body. This is a meatpacker. What is a 17-year-old going to know about dismembering a body?
1: And doing it well.
0: Yeah, and doing it cleanly like that. I, I don't know. But the image of him being an old man in prison in a wheelchair and having dementia... And having that have been his entire life is just the most heartbreaking thing. That's if this is all awful like miscarriage injustice. of justice, yeah. yeah.
1: Thanks for that, McKenzie. That was an interesting story. Thanks yeah. for that, McKenzie's grandma. Thanks, grandma. You Appreciate the best. it. Thanks for the phone, a friend. That was nice of you to pick up. <laughs> Come in, clutch grandma. I talk grandma. to her every morning. Yeah, we'd love to hear what got you into true crime. Yeah, tell us your first. We always find stuff that's yeah. worth talking about. So send us an email, a stranger danger podcast at gmail.com.
0: We'd love to hear those stories. Uh, join the Facebook group at uh, a. <laughs> tell them what the Facebook group is. <laughs>
1: Stranger Danger, a true crime podcast. That is it. (laughs) (laughs) That's the one.
0: All right, I'm done. All right, good night. Okay, goodbye.
1: Bye-bye.